Martin Reeves sits at the center of a thought leadership factory that has produced hit after hit at the Boston Consulting Group. It's a research function called the BCG Henderson Institute, named after the person who launched BCG exactly 60 years ago, Bruce Henderson. Martin is chairman of the Institute, and he spoke to me from the San Francisco Bay Area home. In this, our 24th episode of Everything Thought Leadership, Martin and I talk about just how important thought leadership and the Henderson Institute has been to BCG, whose revenues have increased over the last 20 years from about a billion dollars to nearly 12 billion. Martin also explains how his 75-person research center operates, where it reports in the firm, and how it has influenced the way BCG consulting practices operate. Okay, Martin. Great to have you on our show. Pleasure. You've been with Boston Consulting Group since 1989, 34 years. Uh, you've seen the firm grow the firm go strongly with thought leadership at the center, you know, going back to George Stock and time-based competition, and even going back before that with uh, Bruce Henderson and, and some of the concepts that he and his colleagues created in the 60s. So it seems to us that BCG has a culture of thought leadership, meaning having values, beliefs, and behaviors that reward uh, people like yourself and your colleagues to to create big and groundbreaking ideas on strategy and other management topics. So do you agree with that about this culture of thought leadership? And if so, um, how has the BCG built such a culture and how has it maintained it? Um, yes, I do, actually. I mean, um, and, and I think it's a fascinating study in... Uh, in the institutionalization of culture in the sense that um, this starts off as essentially BCG being born that way. So BCG was created in 1963. And as your listeners will know, the, the business of uh, competitive strategy is actually quite a young one. It, uh, it, it, it begins, I think the earliest reference I can find is something like 1959, ANSOF on the East Coast of America. So um, BCG was created by Bruce Henderson at the very time when competitive strategy was being, uh, was being formulated. So he was um, part of a community of, of, of pracademics. There was no distinction between theoreticians and practitioners at the time. And he, as well as building a consulting firm, he, he participated in the, the creation of the ideas of competitive strategy. So, and of course, he, he wrote and originated many ideas with his colleagues, like the experience curve, the portfolio matrix. And so BCG just was that way. And I think the second phase of history is when because we were that way, we we replicated that that phenomenon or that culture, um, not in a systematic way, but initially, indeed, it was people like George Stork and Tom Hout who wrote together about a very influential idea called time-based competition. And then, for instance, um, Philip Evans with, with the book Blown to Bits was essentially about what is really going on with digitization and the digital revolution. And then in more recent years, and I guess this is the part of the story that I'm part of, we said, well, hang on, let's, let's not just be accidentally that way. Let us be systematically and deliberately that way. Why? Because as the firm grows in scope and size, you have to protect the origins and, and structure all of this thought. So that's when we begin to build um, you know, structures and incentives and career paths, and also think explicitly about the elements of culture that we, we want to protect. So I think coming to the core of your question, you know, what is a culture of thought leadership? Um, well, it probably varies according to the type of thought leadership, but thought leadership in strategy, I think, is about external focus. You, you can't be focused in here if you want to be talking about you know things that are going on in the world. Um, I think it's about curiosity. You know, the world never gives you 
pre-made, fully baked topics. I mean, you have to see them, and that requires curiosity because they never present in a in a fully articulate form. I think it's about a culture of individual initiative because usually a groundbreaking breaking idea seems ridiculous at the time. You know, it goes against uh, conventional thinking, or it creates a new category or a new vocabulary, and so you've got to have some sort of culture that blesses individual initiative. And then, of course, you know, celebrating a legacy can be can be about a form of rigidity, but it can also be a form of, you know, reminding yourself what you stand for. So I think, you know, celebrating the legacy. And so the last thing I'll say on this is that John Clarkson, one of our former CEOs, um, he thought the firm needed a, a statement. He called, we call it a value statement at the, the time. It was essentially a statement of what we stood for. And that's gone through many iterations. But the original version, which I found this morning, I couldn't find it for forever, but I, I found it this morning, had two very important sections. One of them was on expanding the art of the possible, which essentially said we're not about practicing the possible or being useful. Uh, we're about that too, but we're about expanding the art of the possible. And so if I read that, the statement is, we start with the perspective that the goal is simply to apply best practice, but to invent it. Each client is unique. There's seldom only one solution. We believe breakthrough ideas often result from teams working, teams seeking to creatively solve real client challenges. We seek to extend the art and science of management by generalizing from our experience. So there you go. That's that's an explicit statement about what we stand for. And then the other relevant section um, of this document, which was part of this sort of codification and institutionalization, was called the strategic perspective. And so that paragraph reads. We seek competitive advantage for our clients. Our approach is to consider the business as a whole, the competitive system and its dynamics. We identify market positions and capabilities that enable clients to deliver superior results in a sustainable manner. Objectivity is crucial. Valid data, rigorous analysis, external perspectives, root causes, and explicit logic serve as the foundations for objective decision-making. So that's what we said many years ago about what we stood for. And that, in a sense, defines the the mental part of the culture of uh, thought leadership. So do those positioning statements ever become important during a debate about such things as some one camp says, well, should we really research this issue? You know, it's it's too speculative. And another camp says, well, look at the positioning statement, right? Remember what we're all about. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, so, uh, I mean, all the time. I mean, I, I, I think about these things almost every day because essentially, you know, I am in the business of thought leadership. My, my job is to lead the Henderson Institute and in our thought leadership endeavors. And um, I, so I think, I think about the question, what is interesting? What is relevant um, every day? And I, and I often remind myself of rules of thumb or, or these statements to, to get my bearings because it's very easy to lose your bearings. You know, for instance, you may, in pursuing commercial impact, forget that innovation is required to make that commercial impact sustainable. Or another trap is you may fall in love with your own idea, but not check it for, you know, relevance to clients, relevant to the relevance to the world. So um, I, I think a thought leader is, in, in, a, in a sense, it's a lonely profession, and one has to use these rules of thumb and statements about what you stand for to sort of to keep your bearings, to 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 have a semblance of uh, of, of of objectivity. Yeah, I also imagine it comes in handy when you go down a path and you say, "Well, here's what we here are findings so far," and you look at what competitors have written, and you say, 
well, we're not really saying anything much different. And so we got to either work harder or abandon this topic. For, 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 sure, for sure. So I think the, the shortcut, but it's just not a very good shortcut in, in thought leadership and indeed in strategy is chasing trends. So, you know, it may seem like a sensible thing to say, well, how's, how's reality changing? And, and, and let us face, let us uh, chase the, the trends we see in the world, because if we're chasing what's changing, that must be relevant. Uh, well, the thing about a trend is, it is a particular framing of um, of what is going on in the world, and by the time we call it a trend, it's it's a well established framing. So it's many other people's way of seeing the world. So there isn't very much original about chasing a trend, and um, often that trend is a topic. It's not really a, a way of thinking about something. It is simply the name of a topic. So, for example, um, applying sort of lazy trend thinking, we might say, "Well, everybody's talking about AI. Let's write something about AI." Well, if you're one of the hundreds of people writing about AI and you have no specific, unique perspective, I would imagine that you shouldn't bother because you're not really going to add much to the the stock of knowledge or the perspectives you're bringing for your clients. So I always think about not topics, but treatments. I always think about not the trends, but the, the creating trends or spotting the next uh, emerging trend. And I often ask myself this question in the value statement that I just read out about original causes. I asked myself, well, yeah, people are talking about that, but what's really going on? That's a question I ask every day. So questions actually are a great part of the mental discipline of thought leadership. And I used to have two pinned to my computer for many years, um, which I used every day. And one of them, it was a sort of pair of complementary questions. One of them is, what is this an example of? Which is the sort of essentially what's going on here? Or what's really going on here question? And then the since I'm a very abstract thinker, I have to push myself also in the opposite direction, which is, and what is an example of that? So I would use those questions every day. And that kept me in touch with this spirit of observation, you know, reframing, getting to the essence of things, but also being concrete enough about the words that one chooses so that non-abstract thinkers can relate to that and use the ideas. So you said, you know, your profession, your role is thought leadership. That's what you're doing there. You didn't join BCG with that role in mind, right? No way I did, because, um, so amusing personal story, um, uh, my roommate at, uni at uh, university basically told me that, Martin, I, I, as a friend, I have to tell you something. You're, you know, you're a clever chap, but you'll never be successful in life unless you change your personality. And I said, well, what do you mean, Steve? Uh, Steve is now a geologist. And he said, well, he said, you're a... You're a butterfly. You're interested in everything. And people that are interested in everything and flip from one thing to another, you know, are never successful in life. So you better change that. And um, and in a sense, he was he was he was right. I was interested in problem solving. I wasn't interested in a particular domain. I didn't want to be a, you know, in the pharmaceutical business or any particular business. I wanted to be in the general business of problem solving. I, I discovered consulting and I thought, well, maybe this is it. And and I discovered a BCG. And I was trying to distinguish between the different consulting firms. And um, in the in one of the interviews, somebody said thing to, something to me, which has been a sort of a, a north star for my career. I, I was I was having trouble decoding what you know what does consulting actually do. This is a very strange profession. And um, and uh, the interviewer said, "Look, we we sort of use the technology of ideas to change the world. That's sort of what we do." And 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 that idea. Um, was very attractive. That is the, precisely the reason why I joined BCG and the thing which I try to do every day to try to harness this frisky technology of ideas, which is really the ultimate technology if you think about it. it it's 
you know, a few millivolts of electricity in the right part of the brain at the right time can change how I think, can change how I communicate, can change how you think, how you communicate, how you act, and how a whole organization acts. So it's a very, it's a very powerful thing, the, the language of ideas. So that's the BCG that I hoped I was joining. I discovered that to some extent that was the company I was joining. And so although I did other things for, uh, for many years, I, I, I guess I was sort of hoping to, that that would play a bigger and bigger role, and eventually it did. Yeah, but the, the Henderson Institute wasn't there when you joined the firm. No, um, and it's strange that the strategy practice of BCG and Henderson Institute were not there from the beginning. But if you think about it, it's uh, it, it's it's understandable because if a company is a certain way, if BCG is a strategy company, like everything we do is strategy, and a lot of that is you know cr- um, creating new approaches to strategy. Nobody says we need a specific organization for that because BCG is that organization. It's the point where um, I remember there was a point in BCG's um, evolution where we figured out that only 17% of what we did was strategy. And it was a little bit of a shock because we thought about ourselves as a strategy firm. And then we we calculated the probabilities. And it, it, it turned out that the by, by chance, there, there would be many consultants who'd never done a strategy project. And that was incomprehensible to the to the first generation and the second generation of BCG. So we thought, okay, better do something about that. Let's let's have a practice group for strategy. And you know what? While we're while we're at it, why don't we have an institute to carry on Bruce Henderson's uh, heritage of evolving the the art of strategy? So those things were put in place uh, were put in place later. So let's talk about the institute, the mechanics of it. How many studies a year that you do? How do you choose your studies, uh, your topics, with people involved? And I right. especially like to know. How is thought leadership different since the institute was instituted? Well, the, firstly, the uh, the institute was instituted as something else. It was the it was the strategy institute um, created by predecessors uh, uh, Bolkov and Ertinger, a, a, a German partner, and and then on the occasion of BCG's fiftieth um, anniversary, we uh, we we created the, the the Henderson Institute, and the idea was. That we wanted to shape upstream research and ideas, not just on strategy, but on all elements of BCG's diverse, diverse offering. Um, so, there's, what is the what is the strategy? Uh, the the Henderson Institute. Um, it's it's got a number of different components. So, it's got a strategy lab um, where we do think about strategy. Um, I'm a strategist, so I, I'm very involved with that part. We've got a, t- a technology lab in Paris that thinks about the strategic implications, the organizational implications of technology. Um, we have a social impact lab led by another guy that thinks about sustainability, sustainable business model innovation, and so on. We have a fellows program. So we, um, we offer our established thought leaders three years and a budget and some resources to basically pursue anything they're passionate about. And the idea is that what our established thought leaders are passionate about is probably on average going to be more interesting than anything any committee could tell them to do. So they have a great deal of freedom time to develop the next big thing that they they think the firm needs they don't have to be billable in other words they're they're taking oh, no, they, they they are um 30 focused for three years on evolving the art not selling the art the um we have a, a macroeconomics unit that's focused on essentially the microeconomic implications of macro developments you know we inflation is rising what does that mean for firms you know uncertainty is high what does that mean for firms and then we have a 
a small support unit which does our uh, our marketing. Um, we we find that the the marketing you need for thought leadership is not like general marketing. You need specific knowledge of channels and relationships and so on. Um, and then we have a governance board. Um, we decided it would be healthy to create a a a, a body for us to report to to keep us honest. And uh, so we have something called the Innovation Sounding Board. So all of that is, it's about seventy-five people in total, and and within that, it's 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 a, at any time it's usually a dozen fellows. It's uh, it's a few economists. It's uh, a lot of ambassadors. Ambassadors are younger consultants who are excellent thinkers who are intellectually curious that join us for one or two years and then rotate back to the consulting staff, and that way the ideas go we call them ambassadors because they they're ambassadors from the consulting business to us and they they take the 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 ideas and the culture back uh back into the business and and the support staff um so that's sort of what we what we are and um who does who does all this report to because i have a my theory is it should not report to marketing in a firm it no. needs to, to the very top if thought leadership is actually going to influence practices and the right. new practices. Well, well, it's 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 sort of hard to, you know, in the sense of being directed by it. It's hard to direct thought leadership. In fact, one of the things I've learned over the years of doing this is that the modulating the distance and getting the distance from the business just right is absolutely critical. Because if you're if you're too many steps ahead of the parade, you're not part of the parade. If you're half a step ahead of the parade, you're just out of step. You're you're part of the parade, but you're out of you're a poor part of the parade. So so modulating distance is important and. It's. I think senior championship is rarely instantaneously important, but over time it's very important because we don't produce revenue directly. I, I believe. Uh, I genuinely believe we add a lot of value to the business, but we don't produce direct revenues. So that means that every time, um, you know, a very efficiency-oriented CFO or um, or there's a downturn or something, people say, "Well, what have we got that we can cut?" And you need that. You need the senior championship to say, "No, no, guys, do not cut that." You know. And, and so senior championship is rather important. And also in a firm like BCG, where, you know, there is little formal structure, um, things like, you know, the papal blessing from leadership is really rather important. So we initially, um, I, I set up the Henderson Institute so that we reported to the executive committee, but the executive committee was too big and had too many things to think about. So we created a, um, a sort of a subset of the executive committee, the sort of respected um, leaders of the firm, intellectual and operational, called the Innovation Sounding Board, and that is that is who we report to. And I, I agree that it would be disastrous if we reported to marketing because I believe that one of the most common mistakes in thought leadership is to confuse thought leadership with thought leadership marketing, which are really not the same things. Having insights and expressing those insights is not really not really the same thing as optimizing the communications of those insights. Yeah, it's music uh, music to my ears. Uh, it, the way I look at it is thought leadership research has to feed marketing and selling and all that, but it as important or more important, it has to feed service enhancement and new service development. Otherwise, you're making a lot of promises to the market that you can't you can't scale up this expertise. Oh, oh, oh you. Or you're, or it's seen for just what it is, which is, you know, brochureware or or free, as, as as the English legal system calls it. It's just, you know, a decoration of business as usual. This was one of the most important messages in my book, competing on thought leadership. I titled chapter nine, converting thought leadership into high quality services. 
In that chapter, I argued that thought leadership research needs to generate content for two purposes. The first is what I call demand creation, meaning marketing and selling. The second was supply creation, which means service delivery, which in turn means methodology development, skills acquisition and development, and then the delivery of that expertise at scale. Which I guess, you know, raises another really interesting topic, which is what is the value of thought leadership? So again, I, I won't attempt a general theory because I know BCG thought leadership very deeply. I mean, I'm sure there are many other species of thought leadership out there, but some people expect that the main value is the development of new product. And certainly that's one value that you, you study something and that becomes something you write about and something you create an intervention around. So that's one type of value. It's actually not the biggest source of value in, in, in my experience. The biggest sort of source of value is serving the non-project needs of our clients. So here, if you have a relationship uh, with a client, and of course, um, the economics of consulting are all about relationships. If you're chasing projects, you know, consulting is a very unattractive business because of proposal costs and lack of predictability and so on. And so if you're in relationships, there'll be some times when there's a specific job to be done for a specific amount of money during a specific period. But there'll be lots of times when your client wants to know, what do you think about this? Or I heard about this, do you think that's relevant to us? Or I'm struggling with this, could you help me frame this? Um, so you know, that, that conversation is a conversation which is not a project, not a product. Um, so that's thought leadership is connected to that. Um, it's connected to access, which is why would the most senior people in a firm want to talk to you? Because they could probably delegate the, the contracting for the project to the procurement department or the division head or something. Uh, they want to talk to you about something that's on their mind, or they want to know what you think should be on their mind. So that's a that's a very non-transactional form of relationship that deepens relationships, that that broadens access. In 2012, Martin and two co-authors, Claire Love and Philip Tillmans, published an article in Harvard Business Review's print edition. The article was titled, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy. In the article, they argued that the strategic planning approach for one company could be totally inappropriate for another company. They presented a framework that categorized strategic planning approaches into four types, adaptive, shaping, classical, and visionary. The third one is um, is shaping agendas. Uh, I mean, so here's, here's a surprising statement, but it's not an exaggeration. I, I've been doing a, a strategy for business strategy for, for many years now, and I can't think of a single instance where the strategy problem that was framed by the client was the right framing. Always the most important question is, what is really going on here? What's the real question? And then, of course, you have to solve for that question. But in in my mind, the more artful question is the first one, which is what is the what is the real question here? Um, so that's a thought. That's a sort of a thought leadership conversation. You know, mm -hmm. framing what is the real what is the real uh, problem here? And then the um, another another sort of uh, a value that we stumble across more occasionally um, is that, of course, thought leadership is not just for consultants; it's for clients. I did a very interesting project in the construction industry some time ago where. Uh, the problem was that um, it was civil engineering. So, so, so civil engineering is is essentially PhDs creating very complicated structural models of bridges and complicated buildings. Um, you might expect that it's a very valuable business. It's actually a commodity because these uh, designs go through procurement departments, and the procurement departments invite you know twenty companies to bid. 
So we were thinking about a strategy of decommoditization, and the strategy turned out to be a thought leadership strategy, which is get into the business of shaping how clients think about buildings and the functionality of buildings and the intelligence of buildings and the economics of operation of buildings. So the, so the product was the creation of a thought leadership strategy, uh, which I was uh, very, um, uh, very involved in. And then there are some peripheral benefits like, um, you know, nowadays, I think, um, you know, the millennial generation wants to join a purposeful firm. They, 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 they don't just want uh, to join a famous firm and get paid well. They want to have a meaningful career. And for various people, that means ecological credentials or social credentials. But in other cases, it means, you know, I want intellectual growth. And, and, and so uh, if you're just in the business of practicing strategy, that's less attractive to this demographic, um, which is a very important demographic. You know, some of the sort of smartest graduates, it, it, it's, it's more important to be in the business of evolving strategy. So thought leadership, the value of thought leadership is all of those things. And it actually helps that it's not transactional. It actually, it actually helps that you're not pitching conversations to clients. You're just having conversations with the clients. No, it's, it's, it's actually quite easy to justify the economics of thought leadership because um, you're never talking about hundreds or thousands of people. You're, you're talking about excellent resources. It's, it's a different sort of problem. It's not, it's not how many people. Um, it's, it's can you get the best people and uh, the best people for the purpose. Um, and the impact is, is, is enormous. I mean, we, we do find that clients want to do even regular projects with people that they believe have some depth of perspective, some some thoughtfulness. Um, nowadays, uh, given the sort of changing nature of technology in the world of business, the the issues that are changing are the relevant ones. So, you know, yesterday's product is is, is not as relevant. It's 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 all new. Um, I think you know, custom made strategy is very important. You know. Uh, a delayed and pale imitation of something that somebody already did with technology five years ago is not going to cut it in most businesses. You need a need a, a custom made um, uh, strategy, and and then of course it's it's uh, you know it's a, it's a human business. It's, it's about relationships. Where do those relationships come from? They come from repeated um, impact through the mainstream of our business, but also the inspiring conversations that we have as part of the thought leadership part of our business. And actually, uh, another. Another statement that may be of interest to your listeners is our mission statement. So our, our mission statement to the Henderson Institute is to inspire the next game uh, of the thought leaders in business. So the idea is that there's a vanguard of business executives that set the pace for other businesses. And part of what they think about is not just their current game, but their next game. And our job is to inspire that next game using the technology of ideas. And and inspires a deliberate choice of word because it's not merely inform. It's not just information. It is something to do with the excitement and the aspiration and, and the vision and, and the creativity. Um, hence, hence the choice of the word inspiration. So that's, that's sort of what we, what we do. And of course, uh, any decent company being successful for a short time in business is not so rare. Being repeatedly successful or sustainably successful is. Um, is is the name of the game? What Bruce Henderson called sustained uh, sustainable competitive advantage. And that requires that businesses continuously think about the future, and that requires that they think about new ideas. And those ideas are usually not within the company; they're somewhere else. Hence, the value of a, a discussion partner. So, I see. I, I mean, in a sense, I would be bound to say this, wouldn't I? But I, but I genuinely believe that 
thought leadership is absolutely critical to to premium consultancies and any business that's interested in the future. And yet there are a number of big consulting firms, I won't mention any names, that don't have a thought leadership uh, institute or research mm-hmm. function doing primary research. And um, I mean, I'm a big advocate for an institute or thought leadership research function that's doing research well. How important do you think it's been for BCG to have this Henderson Institute de- developing big ideas as opposed to saying, oh, we don't need an institute. We'll just let the practices, you know, continue to develop ideas at the coal face of the client. Well, I won't say that in, in a sense, it's a form of separation. Um, uh, so so in, in, in strategy, there's this thing called strategic ambit dexterity, which is the ability to explore and exploit, to think about what next as well as what now. And separation is not the only way of doing it. So the BCG begins where not everybody, but you know, a lot of people were thought leaders and they were part of the business and the CEO was a thought leader. So that's a very, you could call that contextual ambidexterity. That is, you know, it's in situ. And what we have now, you could call that a separation strategy of ambidexterity, which is your thought leadership unit and a regular unit. Why would you want to do that? You'd want to do that if um, if the stakes in thought leadership were so high that you wanted to bring a degree of professionalism to it. So in a sense, early in the days of uh, strategy, there were there were low-hanging fruit. I mean, there was a scale curve and the portfolio matrix. Um, now, now that there is competition in thought leadership uh, and the world moves very fast, you need you know a greater degree of depth and professionalism and a greater degree of dedication to do that. The second reason why you might want to do that is you might want a non-transactional channel to clients. So transactional relationships are important. Non-transactional relationships are important, which is there is no cost to the conversation. Um, there is no ulterior motive to the conversation as to help the client think through a problem. That's the second reason why you might want separation, that you've got a group of people that can have a, a credibly non-transactional conversation. And um, the third reason is that um, you know the consulting business has become, I think, more more effectively commercial of, over the years. I mean, I think all of the big companies have you know, very efficient revenue engines. They worry a lot about utilization and yield and 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 product line economics and so on. Um, that's all. That's all great. That makes the business better. Uh, and so, I think there's a tendency for practice groups to do their job, which is to focus on the short-term aspects of business. And so you need really, not everybody, but you need a group of people that stands back and says, well, that's really good business now, but where is that going? So I'll give you a very specific example. So, um, you know, a lot of the revenues in consulting around change management, large-scale change management, that is um, a difficult thing to do, a valuable thing to do, a frequent thing to do in business. And um, I think all of the major firms have, you know, have an offering there. And... And, you know, we had an offering too, and we we did very well with that. But if you stand back and you look at that, you say, well, you know, there's a lot of experiential basis to the things we do, but what is the evidence for what we do? Um, how optimized in the light of the evidence that we can now have in the world of big data is that thing that we offer? Um, so um, we, we actually partnered with our transformation practice to analyze 2,000 transformations on something like 20 dimensions, and we figured out, you know, what is assumed to work that actually works? What is assumed to work that works sometimes? What are neglected factors that are actually very important? What seems to be important but actually is less important than you think? And you know, for different types of transformation, what works when? So that's a very hard 
conversation. That's a very hard set of things to think about if if you're worrying about the next project or the or the next clients. That was that was actually probably the most effective collaboration with a practice group we ever had because we were both very self-aware about the complementarity of the contribution. And did any light bulbs go off for them or, or the practice or for you and your group? Yeah, I mean, it's a bold thing. You know, it's a bold thing to do on both sides in the sense that, you know, what if you found that the things you had treated as important were less important? So, well, we'll deal with it. You know, and that's, that, that's an act of, 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 of courage. And, you know, we're doing fine now. Why do we need this? Yeah, we're doing fine now. But what about tomorrow? From our point of view, can we really create something which usefully guides choice? Because this had not been done before. So that was, it was a little bit risky from our perspective, but it worked out really well. And in fact, we didn't just do the initial project. We did, I think we did four uh, installments of this project where we looked at, for instance, uh, transformative acquisition, distress turnaround, um, proactive turnaround, reactive turnaround. We, we looked at a number of different variants and inspired by the same methodology, we then did a multi-factor study, study on leadership, which we said, well, you know, we have to talk about leadership in a very vague way. But if we look at the evidence, which we now can, everything is big data. You know what? It, what is the value of leadership, and when does that value manifest itself? And and that was a uh, so. Sometimes these projects that you referred to are they're mostly external, but sometimes they're internal to up our up our own game. And is it changing the way those practices operate, their methodologies, their the way they approach client work, and and so on? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, I mean, in two ways, either directly, as in the example that I gave you, which here is a better way. I mean, it's a, it's a totally different way of conducting a transformation project, of, of pitching a transformation project. It essentially says we have an evidence-based methodology, and here are the important factors, and that's what the project's going to be based on. That's a very different thing from saying, based on experience, we'll, we'll judge it as we go along. And And then the indirect mechanism is, in some ways, consulting is necessarily a conservative business because you're dealing with very concentrated, important relationships, and you you don't want to risk place a lot of risk on those relationships. And so, pitching to something bigger internally, be sure often be quite cautious about changing things too much. On the other hand, um, the saving virtue is that at the same time, um, I believe we and probably many many consulting firms are very pragmatic when we see that a client is interested in something the client is right. So m- most of our thought leadership marketing is actually communicating these new ideas and constructs to clients who will then come to us for a conversation if they're interested. And when the the CCOs, that's the client coordinating officers, the people that are running the relationships in BCG, when they see that the clients are interested, they'll say, great, give me more of that. Or let's take that right. to this, you know, this, to this other client too. That's actually the more common route, the, out, the outside in route. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the um, let's talk about the strategy lab that you the website says you bring a diverse group of philosophers, data scientists, mm-hmm. biologists, and engineers to, and others to work with with you and your crew mm-hmm. and the academics. Um, what is your first question? What is your research process? Right. How do you how do you get these people working together? So we've got a certain amount. Yeah. Let me unpack that a little bit. So the problems that we deal with are. Are new. I mean, we 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 we're concerned with the next challenge, not not the current one. So, and often to 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 deal with these challenges, the 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 business knowledge that we have, or the knowledge that the business establishment has, is is not enough. Um, so, for example, um, we've done a lot of work recently on ethics, and we've done work on um, social polarization, 
Uh, we're doing work on the on the long-term impacts of demographic changes globally. Um, so you need political scientists, you need um, philosophers, you need ethicists to be able to get at these problems. So we have a certain amount of that diversity internally. Uh, we have some um, multi-year um, academic relationships with e ecologists and philosophers and, and technologists and others. And so what is the research process of putting those things together? Well, I think the most important thing is that you have the right people at the table in the first place, because a, a, a specialist or an expert, not always, you know, often um, is protective of their discipline, speaks a special language, you know, as an implicit belief that it's their discipline, which is the, the dominant and best way of looking at something. So that's that's not very helpful for a collaborative research process. So you need people that are self-confident. They're not they're not too paranoid and competitive. They're, they're curious. Um, they may have a successful academic career, but they're quite interested in real-world applications too. They can communicate very well. They can communicate with people in other disciplines. Um, not too much ego. You know, they can contribute to a solution, and the solution, you know, philosophy may not be, philosophical ethics may not be the end up being the dominant framing. It may be just be a contribution. So you bring these people together, and um, if they're outside the organization and they're from another discipline, you know, I find that, you are for longer, you know, building multi-year relationships is, is the name of the game. I think it's very difficult to take an academic in a in a discipline where the bridge to business is not yet built and have it performing within three months. It's very, very hard. So um, I guess it's no accident that our, our our relationships are many fewer than when I first started, but you know, multi-year, sort of seven or ten year relationships. Now, in terms of the projects, I think I think we have different sizes of project. I um I do. We do have some very fast projects. I'm quite keen on uh, what, what I call perspective in a week. You know, you you have a week to write something, and it's it's totally possible. And actually, it cleans out the cobwebs when you when you do a sprint piece. Um, it often ends up being better than the the piece you spent six months on because it's a single thought, clearly elaborated. Whereas the six month project often has bits of this and that added to it. And it's you know more complicated. Um, plus, it reminds us that you know essentially it's all about the, you know, it's all about thoughts and the articulation of those thoughts. It's not complicated. It doesn't have to take years and years. We do meteor projects where we uh, we we take you know, a very a tricky problem, for instance, um, the intersection of politics and business. So everything in business now is politicized, and we've been doing a series of pieces on different aspects of where does politics fit into strategy. And why taking a stance or not, which is often how these things are framed, is actually the, the wrong framing. It's, it's orthogonal to whether it's effective, effective or not. You can get into trouble for taking a stance or not taking a stance. So that was, that was harder to wrestle to the ground, and we knew it would be. Um, so that was, that was more like a, a six-month exercise. Quite a lot of what we do nowadays and very little of what we used to do was very data-intensive. So this transformation, evidence-based transformation project um, that involved collecting a lot of data and analyzing a lot of data. And the collecting and the cleaning part is usually the hard part because if it if it hasn't been done before, that's probably because the data is not in one place or isn't clean or something. So you know, data collection and cleaning. So that was more like a, a six-month project. And then we have multi-year collaborations with, um, uh, for instance, um, Professor Simon Levin, uh, Levin, who's a an evolutionary biologist at Princeton, um, who has a really a great skill, which is to bring mathematical rigor to soft problems, essentially, is, is stock in trade. Uh, we have, um, I think, like a seven or eight-year relationship with him where we we put various problems through that process, but they're all sort of 
essentially problems of nested complex adaptive systems. So it's 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 one big project, really. It's one big never-ending project. So we have all of those types of projects. Then we have the three-year version of that, which is the fellowship. So I um part of my role is mentoring the fellows. And 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 so, you know, the, and, and there's a certain rhythm to a three-year research project. You know, that's another time scale. So um the, there's a lot of constancy of the method, but in terms of the time frame, it comes in it comes in different uh, different units, very fast and, and and quite slow. I think the key features of the method are think very hard about relevance and uniqueness. In in other words, is this is this topic that you 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 feel att- attracted towards? Is is it is it relevant? Is that is this something the CEOs are worrying about, or you just think they're worrying about? So so you need to go out and do external research or do a radar scan to sort of. Make sure you you know about that, and then and then it's your right to say something, which is okay. There are twenty people working on that. Why do we think we can break through the clutter? Where it's more about the treatment than the topic. You you know we worry about that, and then we usually um, have a first step. The first step is really important, which is well, you know, can we sell this to Harvard Business Review? Um, is anyone actually interested? Did we get a good reaction to the first paper? And then you know if and sometimes the answer is no. You know it was it was a wrong framing. Start again. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, we'll say, yeah, more, you know, we'll do a second paper and a third paper and we'll pick off different angles. And so the a little trick which I like to deploy is, 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 is to write the, the umbrella piece basically lays out why is the topic important, what is our perspective on the topic, and gives, lays out the different aspects of the topic. And then it naturally sets up your agenda and the expectations that you can do another slice of the topic, and then another slice of the topic. Why is that important? Because it's important to have a plan which cuts across paper. You, you know, writing a paper is not a not a valid project plan. I think you you've got to have like a multi paper approach to this thing. It has to be an arc, and uh, and also you want to learn along the way. So you want it to be divided into pieces. And also, I find that you know, clients' attention is very precious. So you you never get all of the understanding and empathy. And sympathy and engagement that you hoped for in one shot, you get it through a sort of a drip feed process. You get it through repeatedly addressing and going deeper and deeper on a topic once you've built credibility and reputation on, on the topic. So it doesn't always work out, but where you can anticipate a a multi-year agenda and write this umbrella piece and then unpack it over a period of a couple of years has, has been some of the most powerful work we've done. Yeah, let's uh, move to the question about your uh, the 2021 HBR print article, print edition article that you co-authored, The Power of the Anomaly. Now, I love that article because I thought you guys put your finger on something that I've seen to be important in creating thought-leading big ideas, right. identifying nascent and unlabeled trends, you know, and do you think, and to me, two of the biggest examples of this beyond CG concepts are business reengineering, which I'm pretty familiar with because I was at the firm that worked with Michael Hammer, developed that concept, and of course, disruptive innovation, Christians and, and Innocite and all that. To me, those are both great mm-hmm. examples of, of the phenomena you're pointing to. So my question is, in applying Annapolis to thought leadership, why does this appear to be so hard for many, maybe most consulting firms? the other sectors. There. Yeah, I think I think it's not just consulting firms. So my my last book was called The Imagination Machine, and it was I wrote it because I thought that the creative side of strategy, the the strategy discipline, was a little neglected. Um, you know, it's a very analytical discipline, and that's legitimate. 
but but the ideas have to come from somewhere. There has to be some intuition, some excitement, um, some sociological spread of ideas. So this creative and social aspect to ideas, I thought was neglected. So I wrote the imagination machine. So I actually went and studied for a couple of years. You know, where do big ideas come from? How do companies make a business of ideas? And how do they get how do they get trapped by their own ideas? And and part of that, and that's where the, that's where the piece came from, the piece on anomalies that you're referring to, and. And I guess my conclusion was that it actually took me back to something. I often think that I've outdone the master, Bruce Henderson, uh, the master strategist. And I usually discovered actually I hadn't. So I, I, I sort of thought I'd discovered something really important by getting trapped by ideas. And then I found that Henderson in, I think, before late, ni- late 1960s had said that successful companies more often than not become prisoners of the assumptions that underpin their formerly successful business model. And I thought, damn, you know, the, the master already said it. But but I did go deeper on that phenomenon. And so what I found was that all successful businesses are based on an active imagination. Just to be have the right to exist and to be successful, you have to imagine. What does imagine mean? It means to um, to conceive of something that isn't the case that could be made to be the case. That's what a business does. It takes something that isn't in the world and makes it a reality. In fact, makes it so pervasive that we stop noticing the reality. I mean, we don't notice our iPhones anymore. Everybody, everybody has an iPhone. It's like water. It's it's universal. But the idea of carrying around um, a supercomputer in your pocket it's, it's, it, it was an absurd idea at the at the time. So entrepreneurs do that. That's where companies come from. But what I found was that it's very it's very hard to escape the mental prison of your current product or business model, because it's the basis for your success. You don't want to meddle with success. There may be no reason in the commercial results of the firm to mess with the success until there is, by which time it's too late. But you know, we're, we're fine. Why do we need to mess with that is, 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 is a sort of a, a well-established sentiment. Plus, a business, I think many entrepreneurs or, or, or leaders would say, look, the role of an entrepreneur is to find something. And the role of a of an established company CEO is to perfect that thing, to roll it out, to make it more efficient, not to reconceive it. So our muscles for reconceiving things are often uh, you know, poorly developed. What's the antidote to that? Um, well, the antidote, I think, is to, is to practice reframing, to realize, as I put it the, in the book, that a mental model is not a fact, it's a choice. It often looks like a fact. If I say I have a 2% share of the pharmaceutical industry, it sounds like an objective fact. But, you know, my mental model of what the pharmaceutical industry is, what the boundaries of that, how I measure market share, I mean, that's all assumption. That's just one way of looking at things. A mental model is a choice. So we can actually look for alternative mental models. Um, we can carry out thought experiments for alternative mental models without risking anything. Thinking doesn't cost anything. It's not risky. Um, we, can, we can have multiple mental models. Where is the clue to which mental models? Because we don't just simply dream up things in a vacuum, it's anomalous. You know, for any trend or reality we think we perceive, there's always a piece of data that doesn't fit. And if you think like an accountant, then you may only look at the average. If you think like a novelist, you're interested in the particular details. Okay, customers like it this way. Well, this customer doesn't like it that way. You can either say, well, that's irrelevant. That's just one customer. Or you can say, well, maybe we want to serve that customer too. Or Maybe that's an underserved segment, or maybe that's a precedent for the way in which customer sentiment is changing. And you can focus on the anomaly. And when you focus on the anomaly, you the anomaly itself doesn't usually tell you how to think about the anomaly. 
you can you can think about different framings that help you to understand that that consumer's reality. And you can start to do con- what I call contingent thinking or, count- or counterfactual thinking. You can start to say, well, what if that consumer were the mainstream? What if we wanted to satisfy that consumer? Uh, what would you have to change? So the anomaly is the, along with the accident and the analogy, anomaly, accident, and analogy are the, are the clues which innovative strategists should, should, should pay attention to. And I think that applies to um, physical products. And it certainly applies in thought leadership too, because I mean, this, th- there's a conventional wisdom for everything. I mean, we may say, yeah, we know what AI is. We know what a large language model is. Now we know what they do. We know what they can't do. But, you know, we're starting to mix proprietary data with, with large language models. But we're, we're using knowledge maps that, that lock in logical relationships with large language models. We're beginning to couple large language models with automated decision making. We're, so it's not entirely given. Um, there's always scope for saying, what is the next thing? What's another way of looking at this? And that's where the thought leadership goes from being thought to thought leadership, right? That's, that's where the, the, where the, where the new part of the contribution comes in. So I, I'm, I'm allergic to running thought leadership on trends. I, I, where, where I look for clues is in what I call incipient trends or anomalies, the next trend. Meta trends, which is behind the list of trends, are there a few are there a few drivers that are driving everything else? Um, I look for questions. Often clients clients can't tell you exactly what they need, but there's a lot of clues as to what they might be searching for, the problem they might be trying to solve in their in their questions. I look for phenomena. I, I scan the um, the newspaper every day, and what I'm looking for is quirky stuff that doesn't fit a pattern, stuff we can't explain, stuff that doesn't. Stuff that isn't well named, stuff that isn't fully codified, stuff that invites another way of thinking about it. So, in short, I think um, thinking about anomalies, things that need explaining in the world, valuable things that valuable phenomena, and and questions that need more explanation in the world is at the heart of, of of thought leadership. That's that's the navigation of of thought leadership. That's that's where you get the clues as to what you should be working on, which is a tricky problem, right? Because the, the CEO of your firm can never tell you what you should be working on because they don't have hours and hours to devote to thinking through, you know, all of the anomalies. The client is hiring you because they're not sure about, you know, exactly what the problem is. And, you know, the brilliant fresh graduate that knows nothing of the context of business is not going to be able to tell you. The, the dyed-in-the-wool expert will certainly tell you something, but it may be yesterday's argument. So this, I, I guess you could call it a radar function. This radar function of thought leadership is a really critical part of the equation, I think. So would you, would it be fair to call that you're looking for the dots out there? You're looking to connect them. You're looking to understand how they fit together and then to put a label on it and to turn that into a practice by studying the companies yeah. that are- I remember, a client, I remember a client told me once, um, I mean, I think it was one of my first projects when I, I used to do consulting in um, UK and then Japan and then the US. As soon after I moved to the, to, to the US, I was- I was doing some high wire work between different groups. It was very political. I was, I was trying to get some game going between two departments that didn't talk to each other. And I remember one of the clients pulling me aside and saying, Martin, you do realize that the highest rewards and the biggest existential risks are in playing between silos, don't you? And I said, well, which, which do you think is, it is in my case? And he said, 
I think you're more on the risk side currently. I advise you to walk out of that space. I find I find the same thing with ideas, which is there are the places that people look that have the names. Like people may say operational efficiency. That's one silo. They may say profit maximization. They may say innovation. Um, so these are all little you know silos. Stringing these things together and saying, well, actually, that's a different unit of analysis, or actually, these things are the same thing, or actually, they're antagonistic forces. We need a new framing. Yeah, the most dangerous place to play, the most exciting place to play, the most valuable place to play. So that is precisely connecting the dots. Michael Hammer, many years ago, would tell us something very similar, which is he would say, he'd pick a topic, and I can tell you more about this research service. Do you know much about the research service that Michael Hammer had with CSC index 30 years ago. Yeah, I do, I do actually. I was uh, I, I studied that, yes. Yeah. He uh Michael was a legend, God rest his soul. He was just a legend. And he would he would say things like, most of the way the business, the way the academics have looked at this is totally wrong. You know, I'm not interested in reading any of this stuff. <laughs> and, uh, he was a voracious reader. But he would say, you know, I want to ask the questions nobody's asking. I I, I wanna he, he believed that his lack of any business education in him whatsoever was a competitive advantage because he felt he wasn't polluted by current wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, it's funny, I, I get scared when I have to work in industries that I think I know because <laughs> I'm precisely scared of the illusion that I know. But you never know. Like a, a question of competitive strategy, what you think you know or what you think the competitor knows is usually trumped by what you, what you don't know. So, so, yes, I, I totally identify with that. This has been uh, terrific, Martin. Thank you much for your time and, and for your wisdom. And um, if you ever want to know more about the Index Hammer relationship, I mean, there's so many lessons that I think most companies that are uh, you know, doing thought leadership don't really uh, realize. It was it was thought leadership was, was funded by Indexes and Hammer's clients, funded R&D, funded thought leadership. And that led to big ideas. But this is terrific. I don't know about you, but talking with Martin Reeves was like drinking from a fire hose, fire hose of insights about how to run a thought leadership research function. I took away many lessons, including how to decide which topics to research, how to research those topics, and how a thriving thought leadership research group can invigorate a business-to-business -business company's service offerings. Now to learn more about the BCG Henderson Institute, you can go to the Institute's webpage, bcg.com. Now to learn more about Martin Reeves, you can go to his LinkedIn, follow him, and read the multiple posts he runs each month. Everything Thought Leadership is a video and podcast series from Boudet TLP. It's for thought leaders and thought leadership professionals, the people who help experts get recognized as thought leaders. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you left a like and if you shared the episode with your colleagues. You can find out more about Boudet Thought Leadership Partners at BoudetTLP.com.